listening to this third in a seven-part series of books about the magical world of Narnia. I'm William O'Flaherty, the producer, and one of the co-hosts for this podcast mini-series. I also created a site called EssentialCSLewis.com to help others learn not only about Narnia, but other aspects about the life and writings of C.S. Lewis. While you can keep up with these Narnia programs there, the best place actually to find them is at NarniaCast.com, a site devoted to all your broadcasting needs related to Narnia. Again, that's NarniaCast.com. The word Narnia plus cast, that's spelled C-A-S-T. NarniaCast.com is also a feature partner site on the Middle Earth Network. For this third show, we are discussing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the third published book of the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't already listened to the other shows, be sure to visit NarniaCast.com to hear them. As before, there are two co-hosts. Let me first welcome Paul Martin from NarniaFans.com. It's good to have you back, Paul. Thank you very much. Also with us is Dr. Crystal Hurd, an educator and researcher from Virginia. Welcome back to this episode on the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Crystal. Thank you. It's great to be here. And if you've heard either of the other two podcasts or if you were listening after these have been released week by week, then you probably know we also have a, a special guest who is an expert on C.S. Lewis in some capacity. We're honored to have with us today Will Voss. He's an international speaker and author who does specialize in teaching about C.S. Lewis and Narnia. He joins us. Welcome to the show, Will. Good to be with you, William, as always. Well, we're going to start off the show first with looking at the story behind the story. Before we get the background story on the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, any useful or interesting information about it that listeners might especially like, uh, Will, take a moment, though, and uh, share, I guess, first all note that your website is simply willvoss.com, which is W-I-L-L, and then your last name, no space in between, is V-A-U-S.com, where they can get a lot of information about some other books. But just briefly here, note a couple of your Lewis books, The Professor of Narnia, and then also The Hidden Story of Narnia. Tell us briefly about that, and then we'll go into the story behind the story of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Professor of Narnia is a brief biography of C.S. Lewis, Um, written especially with younger readers in mind, introducing them to um, Lewis's whole life, and also relating his life to um, many of the themes in the Narnia books. And then the hidden story of Narnia looks at those specific spiritual themes and kind of teases them out for each of the books. All right, great. Well, tell us then about uh, some backstory to The Voyage of the Dawn Treader that people would find especially interesting? Well, another one of my books on Lewis is called Speaking of Jack. It's a C.S. Lewis discussion guide. And in that book, I give introductions to each of Lewis's books. And here's what I have on The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, Walter Hooper presents in his book C.S. Lewis' Companion and Guide a rough sketch of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which he discovered in one of C.S. Lewis's surviving notebooks. In that sketch, Lewis envisioned two children from our world somehow getting on board a ship of ancient build. He anticipated a story about a journey to various islands, like Homer's Odyssey or the legend of St. Brendan. 
Lewis wanted the beauty of the ship itself to cast a spell, as it were. He desired for this story to be, as he put it, very green and pearly. So that's a little bit of a background. Now we go to the part of the segment of our show where we get a short summary, so spoiler alert. But before getting to that summary, we want to note that, uh, as with the other programs, if you've listened to them, that we're not hoping to provide a comprehensive look or evaluation of the uh, individual story we're looking at. In just a moment, though, Crystal will give us an overview of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which will be a complete summary. Other than that, we're hoping to give you enough information to encourage you to reread, or if for some reason you haven't yet read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that you'll definitely want to. With that out of the way then, Crystal, first tell us briefly about your website, how people can get to that and some of the content, and then give us a short summary of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Right, sure. Uh, my website is crystalherd.com, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-H-U-R-D. Dot com And um, I like to uh, do a variety of things on my website. Mainly I talk about Lewis. Right now I'm, I'm currently working on a, on an up a series on Lewis and women. And um, I, I discuss various aspects of Lewis and how he is, how he's relevant today to us. I also do some book reviews and just some different general scholarship there. So it's, a, it's great to have people come by and read and comment. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader begins with the introduction of the Pevensey's cousin, Eustace Clarence Scrub. Eustace is a silly, spoiled child who likes to pin dead bugs on cars and make a nuisance of himself. As the book begins, the Pevensey parents are traveling to America and taking Susan with them while Peter studies for his university exams under Professor Kirk. Edmund and Lucy are left in the care of their aunt and uncle and obnoxious cousin. As the narrative begins, the siblings are in an upper room of the house discussing a painting which displays a beautiful vessel which bears strong resemblance to Narnian ships. Eustace interrupts and ridicules them, but soon the sea in the painting begins to flood the room. All three children are submerged in water and when they surface are delighted to discover that they are in Narnia. Suddenly they are rescued by none other than King Caspian. Edmund and Lucy are reunited with Caspian and the valiant mouse Repetit. Although only a year has passed in England, the children find that Narnia has advanced three years. The kingdom is at peace. However, Caspian is searching for seven of his father's friends who were sent off during Miraz's rule. Caspian is now searching the Lone Islands for traces of their existence. The first stop for the sailors is Philomath. Once they engage the locals in conversation, they are soon captured to be sold into slavery. Caspian is purchased by Lord Byrne, who believes his new slave to resemble Caspian his father Caspian. King Caspian then reveals his identity and both escape. Lord Byrne and Caspian create a plan to rescue the rest of the crew, Lucy and Eustace included. Caspian and Byrne overthrow the current tyrannical governor, Gumpus, and Lord Byrne replaces him as Duke of the Lone Islands. The Dawn Trader is caught in a tempest and sustains damage. While the crew settles on an island to repair the ship, Eustace wanders off to avoid manual labor. He hides in a dragon's cave decked with jewels and gold and slips on a gold bracelet and drifts off to sleep. When he awakes, he is turned into a dragon, and then Aslan later turns him back into a boy. 
Caspian recognizes the bracelet as belonging to Lord Octesian. The group stops at Deathwater Island, which has a pool of water which turns things into gold. Caspian and Edmund find Lord Rustmar, a friend of Caspian's father, who is turned into gold after plunging into the pool. Once uh, setting sail again, the sailors land on an island with invisible adversaries, who turn out to be the monopods, or duffers. Lucy enters the hidden palace and approaches the book of incantations. She reads a couple spells, including one that makes, quote, hidden things visible. At that moment, Aslan appears. Thanks to the spell Lucy recites, the monopods are also visible. Lucy and Aslan then greet the magician Koryakin, the ruler of the monopods, thereafter called Duffelpuds. Koryakin gives Caspian a map to guide the journey. After heading toward the Dark Island, the crew discovers Lord Roop. They finally arrive at the Island of the Lost Star and find the remaining three lords asleep at Aslan's table. Ramondu, a fallen star, informs them that they must sail to the edge of the world and leave one crew member behind. Caspian, Lucy, Edmund, Eustace, and Reepicheep advance in rowboats, floating through a sea of lilies. When they reach the shore, Reepicheep goes alone into Aslan's country. Aslan appears, first as a lamb, then as a lion, and tells Lucy and Edmund that they cannot return to Narnia. Aslan is called by another name in the world Lucy and Edmund are returning to, and they return to England in the end. It's time now for the favorite characters segment of our show. And as we've had before, Paul Martin from NarniaFans.com is going to lead us in that discussion. And as before, Paul will share us a little bit about uh, NarniaFans.com for those who are not familiar. Paul? All right. Well, NarniaFans.com is a place for all Narnia fans to come together and learn a little bit more about the world of Narnia, in particular the films, uh, music that may have been inspired by the films or the books, as well as artists that have entire albums actually inspired by uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. It's an ever-growing website with ever more uh, listings for artists and songs that are submitted or that um, I find on the internet that are Narnia-inspired. And we'll take it into our favorite characters from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and maybe list one or two favorite characters and why they are your favorite um, from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And we'll start with our guest, Will Voss. Well, I think my favorite characters in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader are Reepicheep and Eustace. Uh, of course, Reepicheep, his character is developed more in this book. I think I like him just because he is, of course, valiant. He's the valiant mouse, but uh, because his heart is so set on pursuing Aslan and getting to Aslan's country. And then Eustace, uh, of course, is a fascinating character with many different dimensions. Um, he's the one in whom we see the most transformation in this story. And um, I just really love that aspect, as do, of course, many readers of uh, the Narnia tales. They love uh, the story of the undragoning of Eustace. Uh, that's perhaps one of my favorite stories in all of the Chronicles. And we'll go right on to Dr. Crystal Hurd. Well, I have to agree with Will. Um, Rika Chief is one of my favorites um, as well. And I think, personally, um, like he said, he is more developed in the story, which is nice. But um, also, I like the fact that Rika Chief 
has this longing for home, which uh, Lewis wrote about substantially in his work. Um, and, he, and he mentions the song, you know, about the utter east. It's mentioned, you know, a couple different times. And so he has this longing for his homeland and, and for Aslan's country. And, and sort of, you know, just because he's a small mouse, you know, he's, there's so much of human characteristics in him and that we, we have that longing, too. I also like how Lucy is developed in the story. You know, she's always been the one who never questions Aslan through the, through the books. But when she gets to the, um, to the Book of Incantations... And she's, you know, she sees, she's tempted by all these, these spells. And, and she, you know, gets this hunch, like, I want to hear what other people are saying about me. And so for the first time, I think we sort of see Lucy growing up, you know, um, but also sort of um, coming into her own. And Aslan has to show up and, and sort of guide her out of that type of thinking, that negative thinking. So I think he does a really good job developing Lucy as an older you know, young woman, an older girl, I should say, in this in this book. Excellent, and we'll go right on to William. Well, typically in the in the series that that we do, we don't tell each other who our favorite characters are in advance. So it's actually okay if we have the, the same ones as may have been the case in the earlier ones, or the ones that will to come. However, because it was somewhat obvious, and there are some other ones because of reading the Narnia stories here a lot over the last five or so years, I will make Reepy Cheap my honorable mention. He, he was initially very much a favorite of mine, but as I've read more recently, Eustace has kind of stuck with it, which, as you know, Will was noted, uh, because of all his uh, dramatic changes. I was noting here in reviewing in preparation for this about how he notes that his change wasn't, you know, just from now on, he was just perfect. That he did have some, he did regress back to some of his old behavior, but that there's, I think, just a short line in it that he notes as the author that he's not going to really go into that, although he just makes some passing references. So I think that's interesting on a lot of different levels, which we might get to when we have our general discussion. But then the other ones that really stand out, which also is a possible question in our general discussion, is the uh, Duffers themselves. Of course, they go by various uh, names of sorts, and the book explains about that. They're the monopods, the uh, duffelpods, or the uh, Duffers. I I just was very much intrigued, I guess, in terms of, like, um, noting my own folly as well as others, you know, around me, how... There's just an interesting parallel where there's the, the line about being ruled by wisdom instead of by magic. And it's real easy to laugh about the duffel pods and how foolish they are. But uh, as humans, we probably do things as much, if not more foolish, than uh, they do. So they stand out uh, for me. And for myself, I have to go with kind of like a broken record a bit. I'm going to have to say Eustace as well as Cheap. Eustace, for his his journey, is conversion story, really, where he has to become something that was quite reminiscent of his whole attitude, quite like a literal translation of who he was as a person is what he becomes. And then he's basically given uh, a new flesh almost when he becomes a boy once again um and is 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 a new person uh thanks to the like thanks to aslan and 
and his his whole attitude then changes. Um, and then, of course, Reepicheep, who has the same longing that we all have for our true home. Uh, it, that story resonates, I think, with just... I'd say it should resonate with just about everyone that reads the book, because everyone does know that longing for that for that place that, that we all belong to. And so I have to, without a doubt, say Reepicheep is definitely my number one, and Eustace is my number two, with... Um, with actually going back to uh, Crystal's answer of Lucy as well for a third one, um, Lucy's story, like she said, it resonated very, very closely with me because of my childhood as well. In that there, there are some cruel, some cruel classmates that you may have, and how you kind of hope that you can change that and. It doesn't always come down to the simplest solution to change it or to to recover from that. Um, and having Aslan reveal that, it also spoke very well to me. Continuing our look at Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we want to examine what is unique to this story, and that is something that is either totally unique to Voyage of the Dawn Treader or something that is maybe first revealed in this story. Now, some maybe qualifications just briefly, and that is we noted when we uh, did our first podcast on the line of the Wish in the Wardrobe that we advocate the publication order to read the books. Now, when you're rereading them, you know, you can shuffle things around, but uh, just in terms of that's kind of the angle that we're going to be looking at is when you're considering the uh, publication order. Before you tell us, Will, about the unique aspects of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, for the speaking of Jack that you mentioned uh, previously, tell us some more about what you have in there, because it's not, obviously, as you noted, it's not just about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, but pretty much all of Lewis's books. Give us a few details. Uh, Yes, Speaking of Jack covers all of Lewis's books that are still in print, Uh, his poetry, his literary criticism, the Narnia stories, the Cosmic Trilogy, all of his theology, you know, it covers everything from start to finish, gives an introduction to each of the books and discussion questions that you can use in a small group or on your own or uh, Sunday school, it could be used uh, in, in uh, public school discussion of the books or college level, quite a variety of possibilities there. And there's a few uh, special extras in there in terms of uh, a guide to visiting C.S. Lewis's uh, Ireland and England and a number of other things. Unique aspects in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Of course, this is the first time that we get to travel on the water outside of the land of Narnia. So we're seeing completely different scenes than the first two books in publication order, being The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian. And we're introduced to new characters, those who are helping to uh, uh, Caspian to sail the ship, Of course, uh, Eustace we've talked about as a new character. And some of the characters we've seen before are more fully developed, like Reepicheep. And um, I think that whole aspect of this being a a voyage is 
is a key theme in the book, and we can relate that to our own spiritual journeys in life, and I think there's a lot of lessons in that that we can uh, talk about uh, maybe later on. But also just the fact that this is such an episodic story is very different than the the other two, and maybe even than the other six Narnia books. And there, of course, Lewis is following Homer's Odyssey, the, the legends related to St. Brendan, and he purposely meant it to be episodic. So that was one disappointment for me in seeing the movie and in, in that uh, the recent film that was made of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader didn't, didn't follow uh, the episodic nature of the, the book. They wanted to do something different with it. And uh, I wish they had stuck to Lewis's plan. I think there's a special purpose in that. And now here's the largest segment of our uh, exploration of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, just simply called a general discussion of it. We're not hoping to exhaustively discuss it. We could do uh, at least a series of seven on on this story as well as all of the others. But again, uh, enough to uh, re-encourage you to read the story again, or if for some reason you have yet to read the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, then to take that plunge. Uh, Let's uh, kick it off with the following question. The older children, Peter and Susan, are left out of this adventure. Um, Crystal, I think, wrote this question. So, Crystal, we'll have your brief comments, and then we'll we'll go around with Will next, and then if Paul or myself has anything to add. Uh, So, Crystal, why do you think Lewis uh, chose to leave Peter and Susan out of this adventure? Yeah, I think it's um it's a really interesting change for him. Um, you know, typically in stories we see um a continuation. Of, of characters because we become fond of those characters and we pick the book back up because of those characters. But um, I think Lewis is really making a great statement about our journeys in life and the seasons of our lives and how um, we advance to new stages in, in different places. And so Peter and Susan are too old, as Lynn says, to, uh, to continue into Narnia. Um, but I think Aslan makes a great statement at the end um, of Don Trader when he's telling Lucy and Edmund that they, they cannot come back. He basically says, you know, in your world, I'm called something else. And hopefully your time with me here will help you know me better there. So um, it's sort of a transitioning from, you know, this young fairy tale, you know, adventure um, to transitioning to reality um, and understanding that same presence is still there it's just in a different form so i think that um peter and and susan have you know matured uh, into a new phase and and lucy and edna are now maturing into a new phase um but as aslan says i'm still i'll still be there i'll just be something different so that's just sort of my thoughts on it I, i'd like to hear what you all also think about that i think lewis had perhaps two purposes as a writer in leaving Peter and Susan out. Uh, One I'm guessing about, one I'm sure about, because Lewis tells us it was part of his purpose. I think, to my mind, it makes the story more interesting in that he leaves out Peter and Susan and we we get to include new characters. Um, Lewis was very sensitive to not wanting to to bore his readers with... um, 
continuing the series too long or continuing with any particular characters for too long. He always leaves us wanting more. So I think that's part of his strategy as an author. Now, something that Lewis tells us specifically in one of his essays about why he chose to write uh, children's stories was that he purposely wanted to leave out any sexual element. And so, obviously, Peter and Susan are uh, approaching an an age where that becomes part of their lives, and Lewis wants to leave that out on purpose. Not that he has anything against that. He certainly writes stories that have various sexual elements uh, to them, if you think of the Cosmic Trilogy or Till We Have Faces. But um, I think he had some specific reasons as a writer why he wanted to uh, leave that out. It allowed him to focus on other things. I also thought about um, the the exclusion of Peter and Susan was... um, it also allowed for Edmund and Lucy to um, not have to re- not necessarily rely on their older brother and sister and allowed them to grow in ways that they may not have had Peter and Susan come along. If Peter and Susan were there, they may have just fallen into their roles and, and allowed like Peter to do something or Susan to do something that they themselves needed to do in order to to grow from that and that was just one of the things that uh that jumped out at me as far as uh like a like a leader having a follower that then becomes a leader um yeah edmund has to kind of um he's not the high king but he has to kind of uh act in peter's place even as as king and make decisions on his own rather than falling back on the knowledge of his brother. And, and likewise, Lucy has to make mistakes and grow from them, uh, without her sister. So it, it all, I think kinds of, kind of lends itself well to the story to have them have to grow. And it, it teaches us kind of how to grow as well. Well, earlier I was mentioning about the duffel pods, the monopods, and other names that they go by. These are characters that have um, many dimensions that we could explore. Uh, I noted earlier about it was being easy to laugh at their faults, but in some ways, it's uh, there. It could be possible to compare how uh, they are like us as as humans, and how Scripture talks about the wisdom of man is foolishness to God seems to fit here. So I wanted to explore that um, avenue in terms of just, you know, how, I guess on one level, Lewis can weave a great story and how we can laugh at others. And yet, if we take the time to maybe think about, gee, I've made some, you know, foolish things uh, in in my life. And just these characteristics with the duffel puds. um, Well, one of the things that stands out, and there's uh, many aspects that kind of showcase this, and that is, towards the very end of, of the part of the story where they are agreeing to what's a contradiction. And um, I think that's maybe not a specific instance in, in our own life, but it's easy for us to kind of maybe be like them. The uh, story talks about them being ruled by magic now, but maybe someday they can be ruled by by wisdom. And I know that's something that I hope to kind of live my life by, more of wisdom and not just... Um, the the foolishness that the uh, duffel puds kind of showcase. Any thoughts, uh, Will, about that? I think the key 
thing you're referring to happens at the beginning of chapter 11, the uh, chapter that's entitled The Duffel Puds Made Happy. And um, Aslan asks Koryakin, do you grow weary, Koryakin, of ruling such foolish subjects as I have given you here? And the magician says, no, they are very stupid, but there's no real harm in them. I begin to grow rather fond of the creatures. Sometimes, perhaps, I am a little impatient, waiting for the day when they can be governed by wisdom instead of this rough magic. And then Aslan says, all in good time, Koryakin. And the magician says, yes, all in very good time, sir. Do you intend to show yourself to them? Nay, said the lion, with a little half-growl that meant, Lucy thought, the same as a laugh. I should frighten them out of their senses. Many stars will grow old and come to take their rest in islands before your people are ripe for that. And today, before sunset, I must visit Trumpkin the dwarf where he sits in the castle of Care Parabell. I just found that whole exchange very interesting, uh, the idea that the duffel puds are not ready to encounter Aslan. And so there's, there's a preparation that has to take place. And um, it, it made me think of the old Testament and how God uh, prepared the Jewish people for the coming of Christ and how he ruled them by law uh, for so many years. And so I see a correspondence here uh, between magic and, and law and, of course, we all remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe how uh, there's, there's a magic connected with uh, the stone table and how there is law written on that table. But then when Aslan dies on the table and rises again, uh, the table uh, is cracked in half because of a deeper magic. So there's some interesting connections here that I think could be drawn out. This is something that I've, I've said before uh, several times in this podcast, but it bears repeating that. We, we, we don't hope to explore every aspect of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, having said that, though, I'm going to pitch over to Will to maybe highlight several overarching themes within the Voyage of the Dawn Treader that he would like to um, comment on. So, Will, share us about some of those overarching themes. I really think there's just one overarching theme, or Lewis said that there was. Um, my book, The Hidden Story of Narnia, is uh, constructed around the themes that Lewis mentions in a letter to uh, one of his child readers, Anne Waller, uh, written on 5 March 1961, where he explains that the whole Narnian story is about Christ. And then he talks about the themes in each one of the books, and about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he says that the theme is the spiritual life, especially in Reepicheep. And, um, you know, when I think of how they made the, the movie and how they kind of veered away from the episodic nature of the book, I, I wonder whether any of the movie makers seriously considered, you know, seeing Reepicheep and his character and the spiritual life as, as the through line of of the book because that's that's what Lewis saw. One thing to make a comment on, I guess, would be that I know that the filmmakers definitely saw um, temptation as one of the the primary themes. So that's kind of what they they focused on 
And that kind of was a running theme throughout it, the temptation to have what you don't have. Um, it's just one of the many themes, I guess, that they played with. They, play, they, they played with that for um, Lucy. They played with that for uh, Edmund a bit. Um, but they also played with um, the idea of the longing for something that you, that you desire, which um, I guess that kind of was um, the the longing aspect of it was something that um, Reapy Cheap definitely had. But then they had Lucy long to be beautiful like her sister. They had Edmund or Edmund longing to be um, the king that he wishes he was, and we had uh, Caspian actually doing the same, longing to be as great or better a king than his own father had been. And that was a theme that was definitely, I think, present in the films um, and in, in the film version of it, but maybe it wasn't as present as it could have been. But I think it was definitely there, the longing for something that is beyond oneself, which it... it like Reapy Cheap definitely had that in him, but it wasn't. I guess for me, it wasn't as much as it would have been as it is when you're reading a book. Because when you're reading a book, you're sitting with it for hours, if not if not days. And with a film, you've got you know an hour and forty five minutes uh, of that theme, so it's it's probably not as present of mind um, for as for such. It's so so short a time that it's not as present of mind than when you're reading a book for days um, where you're, you're constantly living with that theme. I think Paul, it's important for you to maybe make some additional comments in for those who maybe aren't aware that you were actually on the set for the voids of the Dawn Treader. So tell us briefly about that uh, in terms of uh, having that kind of inside perspective. Uh, I, I do hear you saying that, you you know agreeing in in terms of how they didn't maybe focus on the some of the key elements as will was pointing out mm-hmm. but that uh you kind of saw what they were pulling out even if they maybe didn't hold as true to lewis as maybe they could have right um yeah i uh i actually was invited to come down to the set because of an idea that i'd had um to propose to my then um girlfriend who is now my wife and so I was allowed to do that um, on the Dawn Treader with um, Douglas Gresham around. He actually helped me arrange everything. Um, and it was really, it was his idea to do it on, on board the Dawn Treader, um, which I was very thankful for. It made a magical, very like romantic type of, uh, of proposal. But um, yeah, I, I went, while on the set, though, I spent a lot of time with Douglas Gresham talking about the themes of the film version of it, um, as well as having uh, Caspian himself, Ben Barnes, explain to me the plot of the film versus the plot of the of the book, which it's his. It was his favorite of the books, so he he described to me the plot of the film. It was a good year and year and some months before the film actually came out. Um, but, uh, he, he explained everything and then we just talked about it for a while and the implications of that. And I got a good insight, um, a a very long time before I could ever talk about it, about the mist, the swords and everything that was going to be 
kind of different from from the book, but uh, we we got a good uh, a good chance to talk about um, all the differences. I was I was actually well prepared for the film months and months before because of that, uh, but it it basically. I knew I know it kind of slapped a lot of Narnia fans in the face um, with all the changes, but it, that was my ex- my experience with it. Was I got to talk about it with the people that kind of were making those decisions and got a lot of the reasons why they made those decisions, and uh, so my experience was was way more positive, I think, than just sitting in a movie theater and and watching it all unfold. All right, and of course, um, as we didn't do in our other ones, uh, in terms of the questions that we were just uh, addressing or the question we were just addressing, it just was a natural um, segue to do a kind of contrast or uh, some additional thoughts about the movie. But the purpose is not to do a, a full comparison there. You, you could do a full podcast on that. You could. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't take the time to the, uh, for that. I was actually going to agree with Will um, on the um, on the theme of longing or sensukt, you know, and the fact that all of us have that longing, I think we're sort of hardwired with that type of longing. Um, I actually teach um, the Odyssey by Homer, and um, one of the uh, really neat asides in there is the lotus eaters, and um, when you eat the lotus, it makes you forgetful of your homeland. Um, and I was actually reading some poetry by Tolkien where he mentions that people who struggle with faith are lotus eaters. Um, it's a very interesting perspective, but it all brings back the theme that um, we all have that longing. Sometimes we nibble on things of this world, but we but we still come back to that that longing. And like like we've said, Reepicheep um, is a great grand example of what it is to satisfy that longing. So I, I think that's a, one of the really great themes that comes out of this story. Well, Will, as you've noted before, uh, you've done a book about Narnia called The Hidden Story of Narnia, and you deal specifically with the spiritual themes in the books. What are some of the spiritual themes or sub-themes uh, within The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Right. As we just talked about, Lewis said the overarching theme for the book was the spiritual life, especially in Reepicheep. And so I, I really see sort of continuing sub-themes un, underneath that that really give us a, a very full-blown picture of what the spiritual life is like from beginning to end. For instance, you know, the whole journey on the Voyage of the Dawn Treader begins with uh, enslavement, which um, has some interesting correspondences uh, to things we read in, in the New Testament that talk about our, our enslavement as human beings to sin and how conversion uh, begins to set us free from that. And so you go right from that theme at, at the beginning to... Reepicheep being uh, received into Aslan's country towards the end of the book. And it gives a very complete picture, I think, with um, many important uh, sub-themes along the way. And we, we get a picture of the Bible in the magician's book and how important that is as, as a guide in the spiritual life. Um, there's a, a picture of communion in the uh, Aslan's table that's uh, on one of the islands. And uh, so there's a lot of very evocative pictures, I think. 
Right, and one of the things when we talked about Houston, um, I'll be maybe repeating some of that, but I'm not sure if, if we touched on the, the aspect of just him dying to, to self. And so that's definitely a, a spiritual theme in terms of how he became a dragon, which we could elaborate on more, uh, but we probably won't at this point. And then when he was finally trying, you know, he realized what he was truly like. And so in some regards, he was dying to self. And of course, he couldn't completely do that without um, Aslan helping. And that's something that we have responsibilities for as Christians, but uh, we do need Christ's help to um, accomplish that. Yeah, I think it's a very specific picture of conversion and uh, baptism as as the beginning of of the Christian life. I think um, Crystal talked about the baptismal imagery earlier. Wrapping up then, uh, well, let's consider um, or have you addressed the following. That is, what does the Voyage of the Dawn Treader reveal about Lewis's overall purpose in writing the Narnia Tales? Well, in the last chapter of the voyage, Lewis, I think, reveals his whole purpose for writing the Chronicles, that by getting to know Aslan in these books, we might know him better in our own world and be prepared ourselves to go to Aslan's country one day. And uh, I, I think it's interesting that he he reveals that purpose there because... Um, I think when when Lewis wrote The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and finished that book, he wasn't sure that there would be any more Chronicles of Narnia. So I I think it's it's almost wrapping up uh, his whole purpose right there. It's kind of a conclusion, at least to those first three in publication order. And at the time, he didn't anticipate any more. I think Will covered it very well. um, And I agree with what he says. I think it's... um... I think it's really about uh, preparing the reader for um, an extension of that relationship, you know, beyond Narnia. It's about equipping young Christians, you know, young children who will hopefully grow into adult Christians um, to be introduced into those concepts. Um, again, I, I like the line that Aslan says, you know, you won't be back to Narnia, but in your world, I'm called by another name. Thing that should be noted that obviously some people have been uncomfortable with this evangelistic purpose on Lewis's mm-hmm. part. You know, think of uh, writers like Philip Pullman and, and others. Um, you know, but I think of my own experience as a child reading the books, I was totally unaware of any Christian symbolism, mm-hmm. even though I grew up in the church. So, um, Though it's obvious to us as as adults, I don't think it's so obvious uh, to children. They enjoy the story for what it is. Right, exactly. And and I'm thinking in terms of, I don't know if these were the exact words, but I, I've heard it paraphrased or, or said in terms of th- this material is of sorts a pre-evangelism. Uh, Lewis didn't set out to, to, to do anything uh, very specific. The The pictures came into his mind as we talked about more specifically in the first podcast dealing with the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. And because of his Christian faith, those elements are naturally in there. And, um, you know, how, how much he purposely drew them out, or they just came that way because of his uh, immense understanding of the uh, of, of the Bible, uh, we're not exactly sure. 
he 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 was very good at uh, creating stories. He was a very good reader of a lot of different uh, stories, and so it was a uh, natural gift for him. Yeah, and I think that was and that was he set out um, to do that, and he achieved that because, um, as we all know, he mentioned that he was trying to get past the watchful dragons um, of of the so the dull drowsy, you know stale religion stuff and so it was i think what he did was he just enlightened it he created this world that that would you know empower children have this wonderful imagination so um i don't think i don't think the um the spiritual stuff is is overt per se I, um i think it's didactic but i think a lot of children's literature is didactic but i, I think his work his world is compelling and that's why even as adults we come back to that. I was actually reading today where Lewis said that um, if you can't enjoy the same story at 50 that you enjoyed when you were a child, then it's not a very good children's story. Yeah, so I think these stories really show Lewis's left brain and right brain coming together. You know, they're, they're primarily stories of imagination, but you see the reasoning side of Lewis uh, bringing in the Christian symbolism. You know, he starts with a picture, but then he he connects it to the Christian worldview that was so much a part of him. And I just wanted to say um, that those lines that Aslan says at the end are also very compelling if that was, in fact, the end of Narnia. It's that it invites the reader to continue that relationship. And it also invites uh, the imagination to say um, that the relationship that they had with Aslan and Narnia will continue, and it, it, it actually adds a lot more hope. Um, as as Reapy Cheap is going to Aslan's country, it's hope for the children as well. And those are lines that, that oddly enough, well, they were the most fought-over lines from the for the feature film. They, they almost did not even include them. But a couple of the very wise people fought fought long and hard that if anything be kept, those lines be kept in the film. I think it says something profound too about Lewis's Christian vision that he envisions the Christian life, not as a process of sitting down and following a, a rule book, but a wonderful invitation to enter into a story and into a relationship, as you've been saying. I'm sorry to say that's all the time we have to discuss Voyage of the Dawn Treader with our special guest, Will Voss. As noted previously, our hope was not to provide an exhaustive look at this book, but to get you interested in reading or rereading the story. Be sure to visit NarniaCast.com for links to the places mentioned today in the show notes, as well as links to buying any of the books by Will Voss, which, by the way, there are Kindle editions of those books that were mentioned. Additionally, when you visit NarniaCast.com, you can find the previous shows we've done with Dr. Bruce Edwards and Dr. Devin Brown on the first two published books. And if you're listening to this after we've initially released the shows, you can go on and check out the next podcast, where Dr. David Downing joins us to discuss the silver chair. Thanks go to Crystal, first of all, who has a, her website is crystalherd.com. Crystal, thanks for uh, being with us. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. 
and also co-hosting responsibilities shared with Paul Martin from NarniaFans.com. Thanks, Paul, for being here. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And I'm your co-host and producer of the show, William O'Flaherty, and I want to thank Will Voss for being with us. As we noted earlier, he uh, has a couple of books specifically related to uh, Narnia, The Professor of Narnia, and then also The Hidden Story of Narnia. And additionally, he was noting that his book, Speaking About Jack, includes not just Narnia, but other of Lewis's books, and that's a good resource as well. Thanks, Will, for being with us on the show today. Enjoyed it. I learned a lot. 